0: by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager,
1: and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something.
0: It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of
1: history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello, and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and joining me as ever is my co-host Tony Black. How are you doing, Tony? I'm pretty good, Duncan, thank you. Or should I say, hark, the
0: the Duncan, thou (laughs) is pleasant on this morn... Could that be a clue as to uh, as to what we're talking about today?
1: It, it could be a little bit of a clue, I suppose. <laughs> a terrible yeah. clue. A really bad clue. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Hale. Hale might have been better than Hark. Yeah, pro- probably. With <laughs> a kind of Star probably. Trek connection. Basically, uh, yes, what we're talking about today is uh, quite a big topic. It's It's Shakespeare in Star Trek. And we're going to kind of cover it in in sort of two halves, uh, take a bit of a a two act structure to this story. We're going to start off talking about the original series and then we're going to talk about the the other, the sort of 80s, 90s onwards as a bit of a group in a sense. But um, I thought maybe what we could start off by looking at actually is uh, rather than kind of starting at the beginning and working our way forward is to think a little bit about... Maybe the sort of quintessential Shakespeare in Star Trek, which I think is probably the undiscovered country. I mean, we talked a little bit in our third episode about the Wrath of Khan and some of the ways in which Nicholas Meyer brought kind of classic literature into that story and, you know, uh, brought in the stories from Moby Dick, brought in um, A Tale of Two Cities and so on. And some of those other texts that we talked about. And obviously, in some ways, uh, in The Undiscovered Country, he sort of plays the same trick again. Particularly, he has this villain who is, you know, not spouting lines from Moby Dick, but he's spouting lines from Shakespeare's plays in this quite kind of over-the-top theatrical entertaining way so i thought maybe we could use that as a kind of way of uh, sort of getting ourselves into this rather broad topic um and thinking a little bit about the ways that that sort of shakespeare works in that film and and what it means to have uh, brought it in in that way yeah and it's it, it's a really great and you know classic example
0: of how shakespeare is interpreted in in the star trek universe in that you know it's the the line in uh in the undiscovered country, in which you haven't experienced Shakespeare, unless it's in the original Klingon,
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly which is brilliant, yeah, because
0: yeah. yeah, because Shakespeare really. I mean, if, if, there, if there is a Star Trek race and there is a, a collection of people in Star Trek who link to Shakespeare in many respects most, it probably is the Klingons. You know, it is that sense of, you know, overblown theatricality that they have, as well as all the honour and the, you know, the warrior stuff. They, you know, they have noble houses. They have, you know, families at war. They have this idea of, you know... Of romances that cross the stars and are flamed by passion you know people like Martuk and surella and you know wharf and kayla and all you know and going back you know all these kind of characters and then you've got these these really powerful matriarchal warrior women like Lursa and betor and all this kind of thing and they really have a real shakespearean sense to them as a, as a race and in the undiscovered country through chang you know it's uh, it's really amplified through this idea of this strange concoction of a Klingon, an alien, spouting, you know, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. But it's done so well. And it's partly because it's Christopher Plummer, really, at the end of the day. But it fits. And it's it's really, really
1: surprising just how well... It actually works. It is absolutely, and it, it does sort of seem to fit the the Klingon character. You're right. It seems to fit that kind of slightly exaggerated, slightly a little bit kind of over the top kind of. Um, and also, I suppose they're a warrior culture. They are a bit like a kind of almost a sort of medieval uh, human culture or something. There is something kind of a little bit ancient about them that it, it does seem to it does seem to tie in very well, and particularly with the villain. I mean. I think there's an element of just the kind of theatricality of it. You know, these characters, you know, both Khan and Chang, these kind of larger-than-life characters, it gives them a sort of charisma. It gives them a kind of... uh, It's not a million miles away from Captain Hook and a kind of moustache-twirling, you you know, sort of slightly over-the-top villain. But actually, in some ways, you know, maybe you need that. I mean, those are two of the most popular uh, Star Trek villains that we have. If you think of, for example, um, Ruafo in... Uh, insurrection, you you know, played by, again, a very, uh, exactly, yeah, (laughs) I was gonna say a very (laughs) distinguished, uh, you know, wonderful actor, F. Murray Abraham, but it's just a really boring villain. And, you know, whatever you might say about Khan or Chang, they're never boring. They have a lot of, they've got bucket loads of charisma, they've got a real kind of flair. And a lot of that does come from these kind of quotations that are put into their mouths that allow them to sort of uh, Saw in a way as as their villainy kind of um, expands beyond the scope of the the story that they're actually um, kind of living through. And the other thing is that, you know, another link between those two films is that basically, you know, that line, you haven't experienced Shakespeare until you've heard him in the original Klingon. Nicholas Meyer in his uh, autobiography, actually, he he says basically he was inspired with that line by um, old kind of World War II films that he'd seen where the, the kind of evil moustache twirling Nazi basically says the same thing about German. You know, you haven't experienced Shakespeare until you've heard him in German. But there's also an element, he is also playing the same trick that he did in the Roth of Khan with the, you know, have you not heard of the old Klingon proverb about a dish that's best served cold, which in itself was an existing quotation. Uh, I think usually attributed to La Clos, the author of Les Liaisons Dangereuses. But in any case, it was a it was a, a proverb that was in you, you know Nicholas Meyer didn't invent it, but he attributed it to the Klingons. And in the same way, uh, he here is you know in this sort of joking way attributing Shakespeare to the Klingons. There's also the fact that the the story behind it, if you read his book, is quite funny. I mean, you say, you know, it only works because it was Christopher Plummer. In fact, it was the other way around. Basically, what what Nicholas Meyer claims, at least, is that he was writing this film. uh, He'd written this villainous character. At the same time, he was listening to an audio CD of Christopher Plummer declaiming passages from Henry V with this kind of sweeping orchestral score underneath, And he just loved this CD he was listening to. And he started thinking to himself, I've got to get this guy in my film. I just want to be around this man. I just want to to hear him. He he said, um, this is a quote, he says, I dreamed of being around Plummer and hearing him spout Shakespeare with that trumpet voice, but how to get him to do it? All I could think of was using Shakespeare's words and sticking them in my villain's mouth. Uh, So then basically then he came up with this whole idea. And this whole idea of the kind of Shakespeare themes in that film and the kind of, you, you, you know, the Chang character basically came from that and it was this idea of like, how do I get Christopher Plummer into this film well I know he likes Shakespeare so maybe if I make half his dialogue lines from Shakespeare then he'll agree to do it well it worked and, and you know it it's, did. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's a great piece of
0: casting and a great character he, uh, and you know he quotes quite a lot of plays doesn't he he quotes Romeo and Juliet he quotes Henry IV, Richard the Second, Julius Caesar. The, he quotes Hamlet, and i tell you what, Meyer is, obs- is a bit obsessed with Hamlet, I think. I mean, he he, he brings Hamlet up a fair few. I mean, the, the title, The Undiscovered Country, is from Act 3, Scene 1. You know, but that, the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from who's born, no traveller returns. And even um, Dr. McCoy quotes Hamlet in The Voyage Home, briefly, where he says, a, he says, angels and, min- angels and ministers of grace defend us. Hamlet, Act <laughs> <laughs> Three, yeah. Scene One, uh, and it's it's great. It's you know, true, so he's yeah. you know he's got a lot of he's got a lot of love. I think, especially for Hamlet as well, which which makes sense. You know, it's one of Shakespeare's biggest and, in many respects, for many best plays. So you know, but it, but it's it's great the way yeah through mainly
1: Chang he manages to bring all these, these great classical Shakespeare references to bear. Although it's interesting mentioning Hamlet, you know, the other, you know, wonderful performance in that film, of course, is the performance of David Warner and listeners might not be aware of this. I mean, I wasn't aware of this until I sort of started reading up about Shakespeare in production history, but in the 1960s, around the same time that Star Trek was debuting, David Warner was the iconic Hamlet of that generation. He, he played, I think he was the youngest person to have played Hamlet, basically. He, he performed in this uh, very well-received production when he was 24. He played Hamlet as this kind of uh, student prince, you know, very much a young man, very kind of relatable. And it was a real sort of turning point for the theatre. This was for the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon, but they they it was really a big part of this project to make Shakespeare accessible to, to all people, particularly to younger people. And David Warner was absolutely instrumental in that. You know, one of the things, if you read some of the accounts of those early performances of his, was that they discovered that... Um, uh, in particular, the soliloquies, uh, and this was a real revelation, w- were kind of designed by Shakespeare in a sense for audience interaction because the, the audiences, they weren't the kind of fusty, traditional Shakespeare audiences who sat there kind of knowing the whole script in their head. They were treating it as a real story about real people, about this young man like them. And when Hamlet started soliloqu- soliloquizing you know, for example, he says, am I a coward? Someone from the back of the stalls shouted out, yes! And, and he discovered that he could play the entire soliloquy as a back-and-forth conversation with the audience, basically. And all these questions that Hamlet's asking himself, the audience are giving their views and their opinions and really kind of engaging with the play. So obviously in the kind of history of Hamlet in performance, David Warner was a big character, and uh, Nicholas Meyer certainly was aware of that. He knew him as this kind of famous Shakespearean actor. Um, and also, you know, actually, William Shatner, the kind of third uh, in that sort of triumvirate in that film, in a sense, we think of him, of course, as Captain Kirk. He's, you know, rest of his careers uh, obviously slightly overshadowed by Star Trek, but before that. He was quite a distinguished Shakespearean actor and he and Christopher Plummer had actually worked together. Um, They met in the 1950s when William Shatner was understudying uh, Christopher Plummer at the um, Toronto Shakespeare Festival in Canada Uh, and Plummer was playing Henry V and Shatner was understudying for him and apparently um, Plummer got a a kidney stone, I think, and, and, you, you know, had to take some time off and Shatner ended up going on and in that kind of, you know, like those sort of stories that you hear from time to time, he was the understudy that kind of wowed everyone Plummer actually tells this story in his in his own autobiography. He says, Shatner scored full marks as Henry, ignoring all my moves. He'd made sure to do everything I didn't do, stood up where I sat down, lay down where I'd stood up. <laughs> I knew then that that son of a bitch was going to be a star. <laughs> so that was, <laughs> that was Christopher Plummer's kind of recollection was that basically, you know, Bill Shatner was this sort of upstart, uh, but, but, you know, with a, a gift for Shakespeare. And, and certainly, I mean, we don't think of him as a Shakespearean actor, but, you know, if you look online, you can go on YouTube and see some of the clips of some of the Shakespearean roles that he played, you, you know, in the years before Star Trek. And and that was a big kind of part of his of his past as an actor and of his background. So obviously you sort of see that in this film that you have, you know, this film is really anchored by these three Shakespearean heavyweights in a sense. And I think that does lend the film a kind of a certain gravitas. It also lends it a kind of, I mean, one of the things about Shakespeare, I suppose, is it, it's kind of heightened language. It's kind of heightened reality. And obviously with Star Trek, that's true as well. And particularly with a film like The Undiscovered Country, which has a kind of slightly sort of operatic uh, scale to it in a sense. I mean, as much as it's about contemporary politics and it's a kind of... you you, you know a sort of mystery and a thriller and so on it also has this quite particularly with the Klingon characters this quite grand aspect and this this uh you know this kind of expansive uh style to it and I suppose the other way of looking at it is you know obviously in that film from a kind of contemporary point of view the Klingons were standing in for the Russians and and maybe there's an element of that kind of Russian culture and the Russian kind of the Russian soul as being this kind of quite um broader and more kind of expansive than the kind of traditional sort of western culture in a sense and that that somehow something of that kind of plays into as you were saying these characters who are uh sort of larger than life who have these kind of great passions and these great um you know have a kind of swagger in a way that um you know, modern uh, Americans or English people or you know whoever don't,
0: and that, that's that's what Mayer's really good at. You know, I mean, you see that in in the Wrath of Khan as we talked about a few weeks ago. You know, you see that in the character of the Khan. He's enormously Shakespearean, even if he doesn't really quote Shakespeare like Chang. They are that they are the same kind of either possessed zealot kind of bad guy or just complete you know, egomaniac or somebody with a tragic arc. I wouldn't say Chang has the same kind of tragic, evil, you know, arc as, as Khan does, but they're both, like you're saying, larger than life, heightened reality characters who you can imagine saying these really grandiose, you know, verbose things, you know, like when Khan says, I'll chase him around the moons of Nibia and around Antares flames and all these kind of things that you could imagine, shake coming from Shakespeare. And then when Chang obviously spouts these, these lines, it, it is, it is of that same kind of, Style and feel, and coming from you know these kind of actors, he's. I mean, uh, David Warner. I love that guy. I mean, I've I've been a massive fan of David Warner for years. He, he you know, he's great as Gorkon in this, and you know, again, he's. It's it's not a Shakespearean role, but he's great as Gul Madrid in um in Chain of Command in in the Next Generation. Again, he has that that you know that level of of the you know Shakespearean theatricality, and opposite Patrick Stewart, or obviously he's another Shakespearean legend. It, it works even even better, but it's it's. Did, did you think talking about Shatner though? Quickly, did did you you showed me the um old the old footage of him doing Julius Caesar's famous speech? I've I've got to say I've got to say I th- I thought he rushed it,
1: I really did. <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't you didn't uh, enjoy the kind of well that's interesting. I I thought he uh he he got a few kind of Shatnerian pauses in there as well, didn't he? You get a kind of uh, cry havoc and let slip. The dogs of war. There's <laughs> <Yeah, it's laughs> a kind of. But then he was very, he was very quick. He was He's very got quick some quick of talking. his ticks, but yeah. he was, yeah, yeah, yeah um, it's true. So it was it's a bit true. of both, really.
0: But and not that I'm, not that I can talk. I'm not, you know, I've got a drama degree, but I'm not Shakespearean trained actor. The the most I've done is As You Like It on stage. I've not done some of the big ones, but I've played Orlando as uh, As You Like It, which I, you know is very different from these, you know, very theatrical kind of kind of characters. But uh, it, it 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 like well, like I say, it works. It works very well, certainly, in the context of that film,
1: absolutely, yeah, yeah, and particularly with those actors it, it you know the, i mean wh- whatever the story behind how it came about and whether you entirely believe uh, what Nick Meyer says in his book about these various things, I think is slightly up for grabs, but but definitely it works. And it, it, it definitely adds a lot to that story that I think, you know, another writer probably wouldn't have thought to put in there or, or, or I mean, because it's quite cheesy, I suppose, as well on the page, you kind of think like, especially General Chang, it, it, it borders on the ridiculous. I mean, there's that Uh, quite funny line where McCoy basically, he he says, I'd give real money to make that guy shut up. (laughs) There's this kind of element of like, this this is is self-indulgent and absurd, but at the same time with, you know, uh, performance that strong and the kind of, as I said, this sort of operatic sensibility, it, it really works and it kind of really, does help sort of propel that film towards its climax in a sense that you've got this larger live character who's stomping around spouting shakespeare and, and actually when you you know you were saying he's quite like khan i mean of course khan is very heavily as we talked about in the previous uh, in episode 3 is very heavily based on Ahab in Moby Dick. Ahab in Moby Dick is a very consciously Shakespearean character. I mean, uh, if you look at Moby Dick, there's a lot of kind of Shakespearean allusion in that novel. Um, Melville was very definitely trying to sort of write a kind of a Shakespearean drama in prose, in a sense, uh, when he wrote that book. So, it's sort of no coincidence that those kind of larger-than-life characters um, find their way through, you know, in, in one version after another and in one adaptation after another and one kind of reference after another, that those sort of qualities are are still carried through one way or another.
0: Yeah, it's, it's like a common thread, isn't it? You know, it's a common thread that goes through you know through literature through since, since since Shakespeare obviously created his his amazing plays and it carries through into something ultimately like Star Trek which on the face of it is is something very very distant and connected from what Shakespeare you know was writing about but then at the same time it's not it has it has a certain connection and, it, and it's one of those i think it's one of those fictional universes that actually if it makes sense to include Shakespearean in allusions in Star Trek, because Star Trek ultimately ends up being very, and, and as we talked about in the in the Khan episode, from the from Nick Meyer's influence heavily, it becomes a lot more of a cultural series. Having said that, though, there is quite a lot of it in the original 60s series, isn't there?
1: There is, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking, uh, you know, probably the the, the big episode to talk about there is The Conscience of the King, quite an early episode, which, you know, is is actually about a troupe of Shakespearean players on the Enterprise. And, you know, uh, we mentioned this in in one of our previous episodes. I think we sort of touched on the the other side of this story, which is about this kind of genocide and the fact that the the lead Shakespearean actor is in fact sort of in disguise, this, this awful mass murderer but it's kind of leaving that to one side there's also this whole story which is about this troop of of players basically coming onto the ship and and performing their plays and and funnily enough you know there is a sort of historical basis for this there there were instances of shakespeare's plays being performed on board ships at sea there's um Quite famously, there was a performance in 1607 of Hamlet on a ship called the Dragon, and you can read the log of the of the captain of the Dragon. He says, "I invited Captain Hawkins to a fish dinner and had Hamlet acted aboard me, which I permit to keep my people from idleness and unlawful games or sleep." <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this kind of discussion of this this, this performance on board ship, um, and there's quite an interesting poem actually. If you, I mean, this is a real digression. But there's a poem called Hamlet at Sea uh, about exactly this, and it sort of imagines this scene where the the captains of the two ships are there and obviously hamlet is a play that features a play within a play quite heavily and they're sort of watching it they're kind of almost becoming part of the play as the as the king and the queen of denmark um the the, in in the poem that that it talks a little bit about the rehearsal process for this play being performed on board and and all the um you, you know the boys up in the rigging have even learnt all the lines and you know everyone is kind of is uh absorbed in the sort of theatricality of it and even the men on on the other ship that the captain who you, you know in this historical log has has come to to see the performance the men on his ship are just out of sight and they just hear these kind of odd strains of this Shakespeare play drifting across the sea towards them so it's this quite sort of beautiful image in a sense of this kind of this ship out at sea in the middle of nowhere you, you know really kind of isolated and, and alone in a sense but still partaking in this uh you know this culture in a sense and and that's exactly what we see in the conscience of the king
0: yeah and and obviously the conscience of the king is is a a a line from hamlet you know one of the most famous lines The plays the thing wherein i'll catch the conscience of the king so it's but but the the whole storyline within the conscience of the king is obviously there's performances of hamlet and macbeth and there is it's it's one of those very theatrical storylines in itself isn't it what what's going on with Caridian or as he's or as he's otherwise known Kodos the executioner who Kirk obviously has this real you know difficult moral you know conundrum with in trying to grasp whether or not this guy is a mass murderer so it it again though they cast an actor in Arnold Moss who plays him in a, it, it, to be this very gravitas kind of performing actor but he's hiding this really really dark secret and it, I think it's a, it's a really, again, out- heightened up theatrical you know kind of storyline. And I suppose in in the, the original series, you know, it was it was a very heightened reality show, even more than some of the later Star Trek series. In a lot of these, you know, gr- quite grandiose storylines within science fiction, in their own way. But something like this, it almost intentionally is playing off Shakespeare, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's really sort of at the centre
1: of the whole episode. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a very clear parallel in this story because, you know, the, the story of Hamlet is the the king has murdered his brother, murdered Hamlet's father, and Hamlet is kind of 99.9% sure that that's the case and that he should revenge himself on him. But, you know, uh, typically Hamlet is is doubting, he's not quite sure, he's not quite sure, uh, he wants proof. And this line about the play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king, that is the uh, resolution to, in fact, the, the very soliloquy I was talking about earlier about you know am i a coward etc is um it's it's the that basically he's going to prove claudius's guilt by playing getting the players to perform before him a scene matching the murder that he committed uh and then watching his reaction to it and obviously if he reacts in horror and you know in a way that indicates his guilt, then he 'll know for certain that the king is guilty and in the star trek story it's you know there 's a, a great similarity I mean Kodos is basically the Claudius, the, the king character who has this murder in his background, Captain Kirk is cast in the kind of Hamlet role and unusually for captain kirk he spends so much of the episode kind of doubting and and not really acting you know there are other people who are saying it's him we know it's him it looks like him it sounds like him basically let's kill him you know let's deal with him um and captain kirk is kind of saying well i'm not 100 percent sure i'm not quite certain you know yes i think this is probably the same guy but but i'm I, you know i can't quite be sure uh, and playing out really that kind of uh, stereotype of Hamlet as the, the man who's afraid to act who, who you know is kind of vacillating and, and soliloquizing and doubting and, and never quite doing anything and it seems strange for Captain Kirk who we think of as such a man of action but actually I was quite interested um, th- there's an interview with uh, Bob Justman one of the early producers on Star Trek and he, he actually says um, it, he said that he found out quite early on this is the quote that um, Gene Roddenberry had based the character of Captain Kirk on two fictional characters one of them was Hamlet who doubted his his ability to make happen what he knew he had to make happen, and the other was Captain Horatio Hornblower, who suffered for the suffering of the people under his command. And with those two people in the background, I understood completely who Captain Kirk was. And I think we've talked briefly before about the influence of Hornblower on Star Trek and the idea of of Captain Kirk as as inspired by this sort of swashbuckling uh, naval captain. But actually, the fact that Gene Roddenberry saw him as equally influenced by the character of Hamlet, who, you know, is a very principled, a very decent man, but but essentially a man who is afraid to act who is kind of uncertain about his own actions is is quite surprising but it, it certainly gives you a different insight into Captain Kirk's character or at least into the kind of early ideas of who that character might be
0: Yeah, it, it's one of those episodes that really does like, like you say, something different with Kirk and it stands out for that reason you know, in that it, it gets it loses its way a little bit it, I think towards the end, the conscience, the conscience of the King you know, it gets a little bit histrionic which perhaps, you know, it, it makes sense in the context of, of the, the very Shakespearean ideas and themes of the story involving, you know, Coridian's daughter and things like that. But Kirk, I think all the way through, goes through this really interesting arc. And it shows a level of, you know, introspective doubt and vulnerability you don't often see when he's off swaggering around the galaxy, you know, charming women all the time, even though there is the romantic element to this. There's a real feeling that he's, he's haunted by Kodos and affected by what happens in this episode, which... You know, it doesn 't always happen I mean this in the nicest possible way to the original series, but it doesn 't always happen in terms of characterization in that show you know, but in this you really get the feeling that by the end he 's really come away from it, having gone through something and that and that 's ironically perhaps the effect of something like a Shakespeare
1: illusion and the story really absolutely i mean. The other thing is, once you start thinking of Kirk as this kind of Hamlet character, I mean, another thing that maybe is worth thinking about is the role of the captain's log in the original series. And I know a lot of people have often sort of joked about the captain's log in the original series. It doesn't seem to quite make sense. You know, when is he recording these logs? There's a kind of logical inconsistency about the fact that he seems to be... The the captain's log often appears to be basically his interior monologue. It seems to be something that's happening... Implausibly in, 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 in the moment, you, you know, it's not really a record that would be written after the fact like a real log would be, like the log of the captain of the dragon that we talked about earlier. But actually, if you start thinking about the captain's logs as essentially a soliloquy, as a way of the captain expressing their doubts, expressing their feelings about the situation they're in, sort of seeking a kind of a resolution, then it kind of puts a different inflection on it. And actually, Captain Kirk does have quite a few logs where that idea of doubt, that idea of questioning his actions comes across quite clearly. I mean, on the bridge, he's very confident, he's very charismatic and so on. But in the privacy of his own quarters, in the privacy of his own log recordings, he often is questioning himself. I mean, I was looking at another episode that we might talk about a little bit later, Requiem for Methuselah. There's a there's a log in that where he starts saying, have I made a terrible mistake? Have I made an error? You know, I'm, I'm worried that I've done the wrong thing. Um, in the episode Obsession, this is a quote from his log in that episode. He says... Have I the right to jeopardise my crew, my ship, for a feeling I can't even put into words? Have I made a rational decision? I mean, these are exactly the kind of questions that uh, someone like Hamlet asks all the time in that play. You know, am I doing the right thing? Have I made the right decision? Have I understood the situation correctly? You know, doubting everything, doubting himself, doubting his own sort of self-confidence. And it is very strange to think of Captain Kirk in that way because it goes so much against the kind of cliché of who Captain Kirk is. But actually, you know, if you look at the original series and you look at some of these early episodes, that, that is a kind of thread that has definitely been been put in there one way or another. Yeah, and it, it is surprising to go back and
0: think of it in those terms with Kirk. Absolutely, it really is. But then, but then if you look at the whole of, of, you know, the original series, it's surprising just how many you know how, how much the influence of shakespeare itself is you know it, it, there's, there's even even to the point of like episode titles like dagger of the mind i didn't i didn't realize that dagger of the mind was from at beth you know are, are, aren't they but a dagger of the mind a false creation you know it, it's it's little things you know such as the um, the, the three witches as well in catspore which are very reminiscent of the three witches in Macbeth, you know, by any other name is, is from Romeo and Juliet, you know, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. It's remarkable really how much Roddenberry seemed
1: to have Shakespeare on his mind when he was creating the original series. Well I mean and we know from reading a little bit about Roddenberry I mean one of the things that uh, alienated him, we talked about this I think a bit in a previous episode, alienated from the other pilots that he was serving with in the war was he had a tendency to quote Shakespeare at them which they found quite annoying. So we know that Roddenberry obviously was a big fan of Shakespeare, he was a big sort of admirer of, of Shakespeare's plays and and certainly in terms of the kind of the titles of the episodes, particularly the original series and I suppose again in Deep Space Nine we get the same thing, we get these very literary you know, slightly opaque sometimes, titles. Uh, I'm thinking compared to like Next Gen and Voyager where they're kind of, you know, the cloud, the, the this, the that. They're, they're quite sort of functional titles in a sense. But certainly in the original series and again in Deep Space Nine, we get these kind of rather lofty titles that I suppose sort of plays into the idea that we talked about with a bit with Nick Meyer before of kind of trying to stake a claim to this as art, to stake a claim to this as, as something serious and creative and, you know, something to be sort of taken seriously. Um, and on occasion, you know, borrowing whole plots from Shakespeare's plays. I mean, we talked about The Conscience of the King. Another example would be Elan of Troyes. I mean, Elan of Troyes is basically the taming of the shrew in space uh, with added Klingons. So it's got a kind of of action-packed element that the original doesn't have. But basically the whole, you know, drama of that story is, is very much the drama of and the comedy of The Taming of the Shrew. And, you know, it's, I don't know about you, it's not a favourite episode of mine particularly. I think the kind of sexual politics of that episode are, you know, somewhat problematic, just as the sexual politics of the original play are problematic. But um, certainly it's it's sort of hard to miss that connection and that the fact that Kirk finds himself in the role of, you know, dealing with this very strong-willed female character and trying to, you know, to tame her in, in Shakespeare's terms. It seems like an intentional thing that, that, that Roddenberry
0: and the writers are trying to do, to actually like you say, is to, to consider this an artistic approach with Star Trek and take a lot of these plays and try and, and, and if not rework them like in Elan of Troyus, but use elements from them or reference them in, you know, in episodes, like in their, in their, is there in Truth No Beauty where there's references to the Tempest which, which crops up, I think again, you know, in uh, in other episodes like Requiem from Methuselah, you know, he's, he's heavily borrowing from the Tempest. So, you know, it, there is an attempt, isn't there, to, to sort of, take this classic... You know, what is considered to be the most
1: classic English literature and and port it into into the Star Trek universe. And I, I'd say, I mean, you know, we talked a bit about Hamlet cropping up again and again in Star Trek. Really, The Tempest is, certainly for the original series, The Tempest is the play that is kind of repeatedly brought back and, and sort of, you, you know, uh, drawn on again and again. And and in some ways, I think it's not surprising because The Tempest is a play, you know, it's about this kind of magical island. It's very much, you know, I mean, the, the we have the line in The Tempest, Brave New World, and we have in Star Trek, Strange New Worlds. It's almost the same concept in a sense. It, it's it's kind of almost built for that format because it is all, all about going to this world where everything is mysterious and strange and different and, and meeting the inhabitants of that world and the strange ways that they behave and the kind of magic that they perform and and the kind of interaction between one set of characters from kind of modern civilization and another set of characters from this kind of mystical, magical world. Um, so it's sort of, it's not surprising in a sense that that would find its sort of um, analogue uh, in Star Trek. I mean, in in fact there's a man called A.D. Nuttall who wrote a book about Shakespeare and he claimed somewhat controversially perhaps that Shakespeare essentially invented science fiction by writing The Tempest that the debt that so much of science fiction owes to that play is so great that really you can see Shakespeare as the the kind of creator of that genre in a sense you know writing a play about these very alien characters writing a play about this very alien world you know it's not just the kind of fairy world of A Midsummer Night's Dream it, it's something quite specific and, and quite different and we see it uh, you know in Star Trek even going back as far as the original pilot the cage the cage is a story very heavily influenced by the tempest as well yeah it 's fascinating how
0: that that would be ascribed to Shakespeare you know science fiction yeah it's uh, that 's a fascinating idea really and and I think to to put it front and center in the cage you know is is especially you know, it's, it's almost it 's almost brave in trying to create something new but to have something so so clearly literary and so clearly going back to something as famous as you know obviously in the 1960s shakespeare was as famous as it is today so it's it's almost brave actually taking you know these these components as i say and putting them into these these classic episodes and uh, uh, the, the question is Duncan, i mean does it work i mean in, in the in the in this, in the context of these old episodes you know in in the original star trek with episodes like the cage and like the ones we've mentioned does it heighten the drama you know does it make it more interesting or does it does it feel like it's, it's sort of trying to crib from something much
1: greater than itself? I think you sort of have to take each one on its own merits in a sense. I mean, I, I think broadly speaking they, they, they work, you know, generally quite well. I mean, I think the conscience of the king you can kind of enjoy even if you don't know that much about Hamlet but maybe you enjoy it more if you if you know about Hamlet. I think, with The Tempest it's more it, it fits well because there is a kind of natural fit between those two things and, and you know you could easily watch The Cage and, and know nothing about The Tempest and you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be missing anything I mean, the, the missing link there of course is also the film Forbidden Planet which was very much an adaptation of The Tempest and also very much an influence on The Cage I mean in terms of the kind of aesthetic in terms of some of the kind of characterisation and so on there, there's a kind of real debt. and maybe this is something we could look at in a future episode the kind of relationship between The Cage and Forbidden planet so there's there's kind of a link in between there but certainly if you think about kind of the some of the themes of the cage some of of, of what that episode is really about you know these kind of big themes about illusion and reality uh about freedom and and uh imprisonment And these are all themes that are very much there in The Tempest as well. You you know, you have this magician, Prospero, who has the power to create illusions. You know, a lot of the comedy in The Tempest comes from the fact that the ordinary sort of civilised human, uh, you you know, the characters from Milan have arrived. And their, their understanding of the world that they're witnessing is being... Uh, affected by these illusions. I mean, they see, for example, you know, uh, one character sees lush green grass all around him and another sees an arid desert. Now that's something that we see in Star Trek again and again, not just in the cage, but, you know, even in Emissary in Deep Space Nine or or in the Man Trap, this kind of idea that, you know, uh, different people are, are kind of being... Uh, granted a different vision or a different understanding of the same thing in front of them, this kind of power of illusion. And really that's what the uh, Telosians in The Cage and obviously later in The Menagerie, that's that's their power. And they talk a lot about it, about how the power of illusion has kind of corrupted their culture in a sense and left them unable to do anything else. And one of the big themes that runs all the way through the original series you know and to some extent all the way through star trek but certainly through the captain kirk character is this idea that it's better and captain pike in this story it's it's better to face reality however grim it is than to live a comforting illusion you know we see the same thing played out again and again in the original series and we even see it in generations the same thing that finally kirk has sort of given into the fantasy given into the illusion and it takes a bit of nudging from picard but ultimately he rejects the illusion just as pike rejects the pleasant illusions in the cage and you know there's this kind of debate in that episode about the aliens just don't understand they think well if they if they make the illusion pleasant if they make the the prison desirable enough if they gild the cage enough why would anyone not want to live there they can have everything they desire they can have their dreams fulfilled you know but at the same time there's this idea that you know human beings that that's not what we're about we don't want that we want gritty reality we'd rather you know um get our feet in the mud and and kind of you know pull ourselves up by our bootstraps than we would uh you know live this kind of idealized but imaginary illusory um world so i suppose the cajun sense ties those two themes together quite well you know the theme of illusion and the theme of imprisonment and and certainly in the tempest as well you have you know Prospero has these kind of two assistants in a sense. He has Ariel, who's the kind of airy spirit who, who does his bidding. And he has Caliban, who's this kind of uh, more sort of deformed kind of earthy character who, who also is basically a slave to him. So he has these two imprisoned slaves, both of whom in their different ways uh, really kind of resent and, and rebel against their... Enslavement and a big theme in the Tempest is, you know, Ariel doing these deeds for Prospero in exchange for the fact that one day he's going to be freed. He's going to grant him his freedom. And obviously, in the te- in, uh, in the cage, we see that you, you know that kind of debate played out over and over again about um, you know the importance for humans of being free and and the struggle that these aliens have to understand that. Yeah, and I I suppose you know talking about illusion as well.
0: I suppose you can kind of draw. A little bit of a parallel with, and obviously we touched on this most recently in a, in a full episode. But the holodeck later on in Star mm. Trek, you can talk <laughs> you know think of the idea of an illusory world, you know, where you can lose yourself and you can become enveloped in in you know something that isn't real. I suppose it's it's a, sort of a natural extension of the kind of themes from the Tempest. Really, it's sort of been playing out in different ways. So it it, it seems to be definitely one of the most pervasive Shakespeare plays going all the way through Star Trek from
1: the original series and through, you know, into the next generation and beyond, really. Absolutely. And, I mean, just, you know, just sticking with the original series for a minute, I mean, you know, you mentioned Is There In Truth No Beauty. Uh, that's not an episode so much about illusion, but it is very much about appearance and the kind of power of of the visual. And, you know, it has this character who turns out to be blind. It has these aliens who are, are so sort of hideous or possibly so beautiful that they kind of, they drive people mad with with by the very sight of them. And again, in, in The Tempest, there's this kind of theme of the kind of madness that can be inflicted uh, by this magic, you know, torturing people with magic, making them feel like they're being pinched or making them... I mean, Ariel has this line about driving them mad. There's, there's many lines over and over again in The Tempest about the sailors and so on be, being kind of driven mad by the illusions that they're witnessing and the kind of power to control someone else's perception and someone else's kind of mental state through these kind of magical means which obviously is something that kind of crops up in star trek in different forms you know in many ways that people are kind of you know put through the sort of mental ringer one way or another by alien technology or or kind of you know in a sense alien magic
0: i suppose yeah and that, that is an interesting recurring theme the, the 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 difference between science and magic you know the difference between you know the future science of the federation and starfleet and the magic you would see in shakespeare in you know in, in old literature and things like that it is that and it's you know it's something you still see played around in science fiction even today you know i mean a, g- a good example it's not star trek but a good example is lost you know there were certain mm. elements of lost that were that oh, yeah, were definitely. magic completely you know things like the frozen donkey wheel under the island and things like that that is an equivalent you know it is something that has no basis in the real world but it is something that's played out for a very heightened dramatic you know epic effect so it's, it is interesting to see that, those parallels drawn and, you know, and raising the question of what, what, what's the difference between the two. And obviously, ultimately, Star Trek goes on to be more scientific and you know, a slightly more hard scientific and technobabbley as time goes on. But in the original series, it is very much there, isn't it? That, that idea of
1: futuristic scientific magic. And also, you know, quite sort of out there, out there ideas in the original series. I mean, in the, the other episode that has a strong kind of Tempest Vibe, Requiem for Methuselah, you know we have this character, the kind of Prospero character in that story is this kind of ancient character who turns out to have been Leonardo da Vinci and Brahms and all these kind of historical figures and has lived for thousands of years and so on and he's ended up on this planet kind of playing this this uh, this role and not so much in his case, it's not so much about illusion but, but about this woman that he's created he's created this kind of Miranda character you, you know, Miranda being Prospero's daughter who is this kind of very innocent naive young girl who's been brought up on this world. She, she's the character who says, uh, you know, a oh, oh brave new world. She's the one who's sort of, in, in meeting the people from, from our world in a sense, from civilised society, is, is kind of astounded, even though she's the one who's grown up kind of on the magical world. But in Requiem for Methuselah, you get very much this kind of, this romance between her and Captain Kirk, and in the same way as in The Cage, you had a romance between Vina and Captain Pike that was based on illusion and a misunderstanding, and you know, in fact, she was this sort of deformed character, and, and, and so on, and not, and not who he was presented with, because he was presented with an illusion. And then at the end of The Cage, she actually is presented with an illusion of a, a sort of fictitious Captain Pike to make her happy, so that she has the, the partner of her dreams. In Requiem for Methuselah, the 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 kind of Prospero character has created this robot woman that um, they all assume to begin with is is real. She doesn't know she's a robot. Uh, No one else realizes she's a robot until quite late on, by which point Kirk has basically already fallen in love with her. And there's this whole discussion about how she's the perfect woman. She, she combines this, they say she's got 17 or 18 degrees. She's very beautiful. She's, she's kind of this idealized, uh, version of, of of the ideal mate that's that's sort of been created in a sense and and she also kind of plays into this idea there's um quite an interesting Sort of video essay you can watch. I think it's on YouTube, but certainly you can find it online easily enough. It's it's about what what the the guy who's produced it calls the "born sexy yesterday" trope, and it's uh, something looking at science fiction and particularly women in science fiction through this idea that you see again and again and again these characters. Um, the the kind of obvious example is the the, the woman in The Fifth Element, um, the Mila Jovovich character in The Fifth Element, who's both you, you know they born yesterday, as in very naive, literally created you, you know during the course of the film. Like a day old or whatever in that in that instance, but, but it com- combines kind of being born yesterday being be, having this kind of naivety with this kind of real sexiness and this real kind of uh, desirability to men and you see that in the tempest as well with miranda you know there's she is this very naive character but there's also this kind of innuendo um, around her when she sees ferdinand the man that she ends up marrying she talks about uh, she says he's this only the second man i've ever seen the first that er i sighed for and you know that word sigh has a kind of there's an innuendo there. there's a kind of orgasmic uh innuendo in, in in the back of that as well And we see that very much with Vina, who's this kind of naive but desirable character. We see it very much with this perfect woman in in Requiem for Methuselah. And, you know, and and really that kind of trope, in a sense, certainly goes all the way back to Shakespeare and gets played out uh, in Star Trek, um, you know, again and again in that way.
0: Yeah, and it it almost feels like a little bit that one of the things that the writers are playing with... Apart from the whole idea of, you know, the kind of romantic entanglements that, you know, Shakespeare enjoyed, you know, within his plays quite often, and that that, that level of misunderstanding and, and everything. But it also, it almost feels like the writers are playing with the idea of temptation, in a way, and the idea of, you know, these people are out there crusading the galaxy, exploring, you know, the instead of the, the brave new world, the strange new worlds, as you said earlier – but the idea that there is there is always something to test their resolve, whether it's a beautiful woman, whether it's this promise of of a, of a you know an illusion, whether it's this, you know, this perfect romantic coupling or whatever it is, it's sort of testing their ability to keep going, to continue this five year mission, to continue going out there. It's it's like a constant sort of, you know, apple in the Garden of Eden test. And it's it's really interesting how that sort of He's played through these often these Shakespearean allusions, and it
1: seems to be a recurring kind of trope. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of almost this kind of idea of. um Uh, kind of like a happy retirement or something certainly that's the way it plays out in generations isn't it is kirk has basically retired and and in the end he says to picard you know don't don't ever let yourself you know don't get promoted don't don't do anything that takes you off that bridge basically don't ever stop working (laughs) essentially is what he's saying (laughs) you know and it's funny because in the literally in the cage which is like the you know first ever sort of original star trek story and in generations which in a sense is the last very similar story taking place you you know both captain pike and captain kirk uh they get the woman of their dreams and they get a and that's, that's, the, that's the kind of combination, <laughs> that's kind of perfect lifestyle that is supposedly what every captain wants, you know, they don't really want to be out exploring the galaxy yeah. and living this dangerous life and, and obviously in the cage, you know, Captain Pike we, in the beginning of that episode is he's had this bad experience, he's lost several members of his crew, he's kind of feeling pretty exhausted and, and kind of wrung out so there's that temptation there to kind of you know, throw it all in and, and resign and, and, and kind of jack in his career and so on. But there's definitely this sort of idea of what, you know, what this sort of idealised retirement is. And it's very kind of quiet and, you know, there's a romantic element and there's a kind of bucolic element in a sense. And and, and those are the things that, that they're that are being offered, which I suppose it is exactly what ferdinand gets when he he lands on the island in the tempest in a sense he gets this you know this beautiful uh, magical world and and he gets this perfect woman to settle down with as well doesn't sound all that bad really i have to say No, it could be worse. It could be worse. (laughs) And one of the things that's interesting about The Tempest is it's not just the original series that it's influential on. You know, it's something that that really has an influence uh, all the way through Star Trek. And uh, in our next episode, we're going to come back and look at some of the ways that Shakespeare is handled in The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and so on, in the kind of the the second era of Trek, in a way. Um, And we'll find that amongst various other uh, Shakespearean allusions, you know, that play is certainly very much uh, centre-stone once again but uh, talking about Shakespeare in Star Trek is not the only thing we've been doing this week so here's a look at some of the other things you might have missed on the network
0: Previously on Trek.fm The Ready Room
1: It was a really great
0: police song for sure Draxine
1: yeah, I don't That's know. It's the I... one where uh, Little Nimoy was uh, singing backup with Sting on that. Ra-
0: yeah, I can picture a scene. Yeah. You don't have to put on it the sea knight. It doesn't C-Nite. have to be every seven years. <laughs> Standard Orbit. The inscription of this book. Is a quotation from David Gerald, which is something he said to me in an email,
1: <laughs> and uh, he didn't even remember saying it. I got to, I, I met him recently and showed it to him, and he was like, "Oh wow, that's a pretty good quote. I didn't know I said that." I'm like, "Oh well, yeah, you did," <laughs> but he said the primary philosophy in Star Trek, stripped of everything else, was love one another. I think Jesus might have said something like that once too. The orb. When something has lasted. 50, 60, 70 years by the time you use it, it's already overcome that obstacle of being dated. Like, you know that it's going to remain important through the years and the fact that someone in the 24th century might still be listening yeah. to it, I think makes a lot of sense.
0: Warp five. So we need
1: to hire some samurai to uh, defend us. So they go out Uh, looking for some samurai, and they find a
0: a group of... of, um, About seven of them. Yeah, like seven samurai (laughs) who are, you know, maybe down on their luck. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone and in most third-party apps and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at Trek.fm slash contact you can also find the network on twitter at trek fm and on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm you can find duncan and i on the babel conference as well and you can find us both on twitter duncan at barrett's books and myself tony at black hole media and you can also find me hosting my own podcast the Xcast, and x files podcast if you type that into twitter and facebook so thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all right. Thou art the ruins of the noblest man that ever lived in the tide of times.
1: Woe to the hand that shed this costly blood over thy wounds now do I prophesy which like dumb mouths do open the ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue. A curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy.
0: Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar
1: The mother shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war.
0: Oh pity choked
1: with custom of fell deed. And Caesar's spirit ranging for revenge with that by his side come hot from hell shall in these confines with the monarch's voice cry
0: havoc. And let slip the dogs of war
1: that this I'll teach
0: smell above the earth with carrion men, groaning for
1: burial.